This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. This edition of Media Business Matters is the third of four special episodes. On March 30th, 2017, the University of Michigan hosted the Future of Digital Media Businesses Symposium, which brought together four scholars who have been studying how different media industries have been disrupted by digitization. Each spoke about the transition to digital production and distribution of media industries for 30 to 40 minutes, experts from each music recording, book publishing, television, and the film industries. The talks focus on how and why each business has changed, the consequences for those working in the industry and the media they make, and what remain the greatest challenges going forward. We offer the audio from those talks here, and we'll post the final talk next week. Apologies in advance for some of the microphone glitches throughout. This episode features a familiar voice. I discuss the television industry. For those who don't know, I'm a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and a fellow at the Media Center at Peabody. I've authored six books, including Portals, a treatise on internet-distributed television, and The Television Will Be Revolutionized. Edited the book, Beyond Prime Time, Television, Programming in the Post-Network Era, and co-authored Understanding Media Industries and Television Studies. I'm going to focus mostly on the television industry that we think of that produces prime time television, although um, for reasons that you will see, it's all kind of interconnected. So these are roughly five different sectors of the U.S. television business. Most of these businesses are distribution businesses. And digitalization certainly has implications for production as well. All you need to do is take a look at a television show from the 1990s and one today, and that quickly uh, becomes evident in terms of just the way digital effects have really changed the nature of what can be on television. And if you talk with a producer, you would also learn about the digital workflow that is now part of the production process that is very different from what was the case um, pre-digital. But those changes haven't really changed the operation of the industry nearly as significantly as the changes in distribution. Another development that occurred somewhat simultaneously with the arrival of digital distribution is the conglomeration of these businesses. In the early through mid-1990s, broadcast networks, broadcast stations, cable channels, and studios in many cases became owned by a single company. Those mentioned here, Disney, News Corp, Comcast, NBC Universal, CBS, and Time Warner. Notably, uh, folks in Ann Arbor know Comcast is also a cable provider, so they have all five. Um, And of these, the only thing that kind of still exists independently is that there is a business of owning local stations that is still unconglomerated. So the conglomerates own some stations, but then other stations are owned by companies that only own stations. It's a little confusing. The point is that the industry had taken on a new shape just as digitization became relevant to the industry. This has made it difficult to separate the implications of digitization from new practices that were emerging because of this new conglomerated shape and related adjustments in practices. Um, And I should also note that if we're talking about cable providers and some of these changes, importantly, cable providers have become the internet providers. Um, In many cases, they are the monopoly service. Uh, In the U.S., 60% of U.S. homes receive their internet service from what used to be known as a cable company. 
So to clear up a little bit of the language that I'm going to use, I understand services such as Netflix to be internet distributed television, or what I've been calling portals. Portals organize internet distributed television in the way that networks, stations, and channels organize television distributed by other technologies. Netflix, Amazon, and YouTube aren't some new medium. They use the internet to distribute video. To tell the story succinctly, I'm going to provide a rough history and then conclude with some key strategies that differentiate the operation of television industries in an environment of digital distribution from that of analog television. The story really begins around 2010 for television. Digital hits audiovisual media about a decade after the music recording and print industries. Before 2010, if you recall, mostly what we saw were experiments, um, many of which you probably don't remember. Most companies had some internet distributed content, but it was mostly promotional. So you might be able to watch a clip for this week's episode, but not this week's episode. And this was due to technological reasons, but also business reasons. If you were born before 1990, you should be able to remember how bad early internet distributed video was. It was slow loading, pixelated, it almost always crashed. Technology was a problem, but the bigger problem was that the content that most people wanted to watch simply wasn't available. So 2010 is the start. It's sort of a perfect storm, if you will, or that moment in which there are a confluence of factors. New technologies, particularly, um, that those that make watching television off of a television set easier, arrive to market in 2010. So tablets come to market in 2010, um, and just as importantly, smartphones, which had been in the market since 2007, begin to be widely disseminated. They're in 27% of US pockets at that point. Also in 2010, laptops overtake desktops in terms of new computer sales. Now in the early 2000s, as these discussions about the death of television were happening, you know, this idea, there, was, there was this idea that you couldn't ever watch television on, on a computer because a computer is a lean-forward technology. In television, it's a lean-back experience. And so these devices are important because they, in, amazingly, in, like, in a second, just throw all of those ideas out the window as it becomes, oh, yeah, you could just do that. You could watch it there. It's the same thing. Also, smart TVs come to market in 2010. Um, and so smart TVs are televisions that can be connected to the internet. Uh, many more homes are doing this using various devices. Roku's in the market. Second generation Apple TV is available. Xbox and PlayStation as well, um, also blue, various Blu-ray DVDs. This is a very niche, very few people are doing this, the most uh, cutting edge, leading edge adopters, um, but it is available and it starts to happen at this point. The other big change in 2010 is that the content that people want to watch is increasingly available. HBO launches in 2010. HBO is the service, uh, the, the online availability of all the content that you could have on HBO um, that comes with your cable, if you're already subscribing to HBO from your cable provider. Uh, but also the big story by 2010 is Netflix. Um, from 2009 to 2010, 
Netflix uh, subscriber base surges from 12.2 to 20.1 million, a 65% increase in subscribers. So this is a big turning point for Netflix really is moving away from being that company that distributed films by DVD, although that business continues, um, to really doubling down and focusing on streaming as their core business. Um, if we are just trying to place where we are in the development of videos on the internet as well, 2009 is the year that Susan Boyle blows up on YouTube, and we are still pre-Gangnam Style. There are two stages, I would argue, uh, in the development of internet distributed television that we know so far. Um, from 2010, the first one spans until about 2014, um, and it's what I categorize as the period of the detente. Internet distribution of television is dominated in these years by Netflix. 30% of streaming in primetime hours, we're often told, is taken up by Netflix content. Um, and there really isn't a big competitor in the market uh, along this time. Netflix is mostly library content. In other words, shows that have been developed for networks that Netflix has bought the rights to. Um, but we begin to move into some big deals. In 2011, Netflix buys uh, Mad Men exclusively after its, Mad Men, after its AMC run for a million dollars an episode, which was a big number. Um, House of Cards and Arrested Development are announced in 2011, although they're not uh, on the screen until 2013. And I am talking mostly about Netflix for a reason. Uh, it's difficult to compare YouTube in a conversation about the television industry. I would argue that what Net, uh, YouTube is doing is every bit as important, but it is different, fundamentally different, um, because YouTube does not pay for any of its content. That makes it a very different business. It's why it is still ad-supported and can be profitable ad-supported. The other company that's playing around at this point is Hulu. Hulu's in the market um, and is trying to be ad-supported. But Hulu, uh, which I think has been best described as the unloved bastard offspring of a doomed tryst among three aging giants, um, if you don't know, Hulu is owned by NBC, Disney, and Time, uh, Fox, and now a small share by Time Warner as well. It came to be because people, you know, people, because the companies weren't able to get anyone to come to their individual websites in this early moment of people trying out internet streaming. So coming together was a good idea, but it's not really clear what the goal of Hulu is as a company. And the idea that these three giants are going to cooperate in the long term is something I'm very skeptical about. Um, but in this point, Hulu is basically just a place to watch shows from the channels you really like that you missed otherwise. And so they're also not really having a clear competitive strategy at this point. So it's mostly just Netflix. The other thing that happens, and I will translate, um, is the arrival of MVPD VOD. Uh, MVPD, multi-channel video programming distributor, um, you probably know them as Comcast. Um, or a satellite service or a telco service, whoever's providing your video and internet service. Uh, video on demand is VOD. Technologically, those services could provide VOD in the early 2000s as soon as they transitioned to, to their digital systems. Um, but they couldn't, they either couldn't, they, weren't, they didn't pay for uh, the content that anyone wanted to watch. And so, the video on demand they had was largely limited to subscriber services, uh, whatever HBO and Showtime had. 
By 2010, some of the dynamics in the industry had changed, and so the Comcasts of the world had a better negotiating position with the NBCs of the world and could say, hey, um, we want the five most recent episodes of all of your shows for our video on demand. And that started to happen around 2013. And so now it's the case, if you don't have these services, that you can watch uh, on demand pretty much all of the most recent season of most broadcast and cable shows. Uh, so an experience that's very similar to what you might have from a streaming service, except for this season's episodes. Um, and so that really comes to be around 2013. So the next stage is what I will call at this point the beginning of the middle. And it starts around 2015. And it's what happens when the detente ends. And the detente ends because the initial symbiosis uh, falls apart. So Netflix, when they launched, needed content people wanted to watch. And they were willing to pay the studios a lot of money for that content. The studios needed money. Um, advertising rates were beginning to fall off because audiences were spreading out more. Um, it, was, it was described in the trades as found money. Um, and so the, the networks or the studios thought they were now flush, that all of these internet distributed services were going to be delivering all of this new revenue. It was going to be great. And then they stopped. Uh, one, one executive that I interviewed described it as it was like crack. Um, and so the problem becomes that the Netflixes of the world begin producing their own programs and prove to be pretty good at it um, immediately. Uh, on the other hand, the legacy industry, that industry that existed before internet distribution, they begin to launch their own distribution services. So, so it is clear by 2015 that portals could offer competitive original content and would not be dependent on the studios for, for their old programs and that legacy providers would begin launching their own portals. So at first, in late 2014, HBO Now and CBS All Access are announced and they come to market in early 2015. They join others such as WWE Net, uh, which is all wrestling and noggin. Uh, here are just a few of them. There are more than I can talk about. But 2015 really kicks off a wild west of these new portal launches. There are over 100 of them actually available um, by the end of 2015. 76% of them, or 76 of them, are subscriber funded. Remember that, we'll come back to it. So most of them, less than a million subscribers. Um, they're not big yet. Um, but by 2015, it was clear that the legacy industry was pivoting. Um, they weren't trying to kill off their old businesses because they were still, cable broadcast distribution produces a lot of money, but the new innovation was shifting to making sure they had a place in an internet distributed future as well. The other thing that happens in 2015 is the beginning of the launch of what are being called skinny bundles. Uh, these are packages of channels, just like you might get in terms of that traditional cable subscription. Um, in theory, there are fewer channels and you pay less for them, um, but they are distributed over the internet. Uh, and so Sling TV and Sony View were the first in the market to offer these. Uh, they're both Hulu and YouTube or Google um, are supposed to be bringing a similar service to the market this year. Um, I am not particularly convinced that this is like the way of the future, um, but what it is important for is that it is really disrupting the dynamics and it's making broader change possible. Um, so I am never one to um, 
speak particularly well of Comcast, but it's important to understand that those giant cable bundles, it's not Comcast's fault. It's the content owners that have, have created that situation of having to have 80 channels um, in your very basic package, and I can explain why later. Um, so it's actually this disruption that is now allowing companies like Comcast. They announced this week a new just broadcast networks and HBO service is supposed to be available throughout their, their entire footprint. Um, so that's a big change. All right. That's the rough lay of the land. Um, what I'd like to close with is a little bit more on some conceptual points. I have been trying to develop understandings of this new distribution technology. And in that process, I focused on identifying the affordances of internet distribution, what it can do that is different from previous distribution technologies, as well as what it can't do, to try to separate technology from factors that are not directly related to technology. So portals are television, but their logics are not the same. Affordances of digital distribution have enabled services with different business models, uh, or revenue models, and business strategies. And the biggest change has to do with this issue of, uh, it's sort of a fancy way to put it, linearity or nonlinearity. Broadcast and cable as technologies can only send one message out to everyone at a time. So because of that technological limitation, this norm of a schedule developed. And then you needed channels and networks to organize that content. And that made up television. And we thought that's what television was. But that's what television was according to those distribution technologies. Internet distribution doesn't work necessarily the same way. Uh, you don't have to all watch at the same time. We can watch as we talk about on demand. We can stream content when we want it. And so this has really, this leads to needing to rethink television in key ways because so many of our ideas about television are built on this notion of schedule and scarcity. And so the new services, the portals that are emerging, rather than building schedules, they're building libraries. And we haven't thought a lot about what are the strategies behind building libraries. And I'm talking a lot in business terms, but all of these business terms are only interesting to me because the nature of the business determines what kind of content can be created. So the, the, the ability to not have to send everyone the same thing is changing what kind of content can be available. Another key difference, I promise to come back to it, is subscriber funding. So Netflix and many of the other portals use a new distribution technology and a new revenue model. Actually, not a new revenue model, um, but it's one that we've not thought that much about. So HBO has been subscriber supported since uh, 1975, but very little writing about the nature of that revenue model has, has developed. There really isn't media economy theory about that model. And, and it is different in notable ways. And so where you had advertising, which is focused on getting as many people together, you, create, you make different kind of content when you're trying to get as many people as possible, then when you're trying to create content that is of such value that people will pay for it. And that's the nature of a subscription. And that, that creation of a library um, that people will pay for access to is also different than the traditional model of creating an album someone will buy or making a film someone wants to pay to see. 
So the subscription model as it's operating for these internet distributed portals is a different thing, um, not just because of the technology, but because of the, the way that it's being paid for as well. The way that most of the portals are finding that value, are providing something of so much value that you will pay for it, is by providing very narrow target, a depth of, of, of very narrow content, a depth of content that's greater than what you could get just watching TV. So if you are a wrestling fan, and people who are wrestling fans are fans, um, you subscribe to the WWE Net for $10 a month because you get to watch so much more wrestling and wrestling content. So that's the value proposition. Or Noggin, if you're a preschooler mom, hey, I can hand my kid a device that has nothing, with, or nothing but preschooler content with no commercials. Awesome. That's worth paying for. Right? So for the most part, the portals are using a very niche strategy. But not Netflix. Huh. What's going on there? I'm as I've been working through Netflix, I've been talking about what Netflix does as a conglomerated niche strategy. And, and importantly, this is different than what cable channels actually could do. Um, so Netflix, when they had decided that they have $8 billion to spend on programming this year, um, they are not buying programs that they think their entire 94 million worldwide subscriber base wants to watch. Instead, they've identified some various taste communities. Um, and so they create for one group, and then they create for that group, and then that group. Um, and we don't know whether it's a handful of these or a few dozen. Um, they have 1,300 of what they're calling taste communities, but they're clearly not programming for that many. Uh, another scholar interviewed a television development exec for Amazon and was told that Amazon's targets are Comic-Con goers or people interested in Comic-Con and NPR listeners to give you a sense of the kind of taste communities. And you look at, the thing, you look at what they've developed and you're like, yeah. And if you look at Netflix, you could say, yeah, Netflix, those are definitely two taste communities for Netflix as well. And so what's tricky about Netflix is, and this is where, again, the technology is different. This only works, the conglomerated niche only works because it's internet distributed. Now, if I were to survey you, what is the Netflix brand? Um, you would tell me what Netflix is based on your experience of it, because that's all you see. But yet we have these moments where there's a little bit of fracture, and you get a sense that, hey, there are other communities on Netflix. Um, one of which, just in the last week or so, Netflix announced that they have re-upped their deal with Adam Sandler. Now, in my Netflix world, I have never seen anything on Adam Sandler, by Adam Sandler. I, didn't even, I wouldn't even know that they had exclusive Adam Sandler movies. Uh, they do. Those Adam Sandler movies debuted at number one in every market around the world um, and were number one two or three months after their launch. Right? Yes, I see those looks of, that's not on Netflix. Right. So this is a strategy that a broadcast or cable company couldn't go after. And so what Netflix is doing is it's developing scale, but it's not developing scale by targeting a mass audience, but by targeting these particular niches, which it can do because it is fueled by data, um, as we've mentioned already, right? So it knows what, what different groups watch. It's be able to make these taste cultures as these expansive Venn diagrams. It has a sense of how much they need to program each month before different groups start to um, cancel their subscri subscriptions. Uh, so they, all of this 
You know, these are companies that know so much more about what we watch than television has ever known. And again, in terms of the operation of an industry, that's a point that can't be discounted. Finally, vertical integration. Uh, vertical integration means owning both the programs and the route of distribution. Uh, and this is not a new thing. Uh, vertical integration has been an issue in media industries for some time, but it looks like it's playing out a little bit differently in the portal environment, and it's worth taking a look at. So CBS All Access um, is often advertised like this. If you don't recognize them, these are stars from current CBS shows um, as a way to get your CBS talent or your CBS programming. But it's actually a little more interesting, I think. Um, this is the top of its menu for TV classics. Now you're looking at that and you're saying, Family Ties was on NBC, so was Cheers. And you'd be right, but they were made by the studio that is part, at some point, of a CBS acquisition, uh, Paramount or something like that. CBS's strategy in terms of its portal is, we own this stuff, here you go. Um, and, you know, the Ghost Whisperer and the Hawaii Five-O oh, audience may or may not be the same, but, you know, that's what they're offering. This is all content they own, so not paying for licensing, it's just, here's, here's what we have. In contrast, CISO, which is owned by NBC Universal Comcast, um, is branding itself as a comedy portal, like the place to go for a video comedy. Um, and so, as we might expect, they're taking advantage of the things that are in the NBC library, Tonight Show, 30 Rock, Saturday Night Live. But their value proposition isn't just, hey, here's our library, just the comedy. Um, they are going out and acquiring content that matches that brand. So it's not a great picture, but uh, uh, CISO has the only Monty Python rights in the States right now. Um, and they're also developing original programming. And to CBS's credit, perhaps, um, I should also note that CBS All Access, if you've heard about it, it's probably because it's the only place you can watch The Good Fight. So um, what we see with, with NBC here is, is a slightly more sophisticated strategy, I'd say. It's, it's not just trying to take advantage of content it already owns. It's paying to develop new content to really solidify its status as the place for comedy. Um, it's too soon to know whether both strategies work or neither do. I think the really important thing to be thinking about is the way in which it is probably already impossible for any new competitor to launch that doesn't already have a library. And so the story of Netflix is this company that came in and entered this industry out of nowhere is, is, a, law, is a far anomaly. Um, and, and they were able to get in largely based on the revenue of their previous business. <clears throat> 